1: vaccination passports becoming more common across the country. Alberta family doctors report very aggressive patients demanding they be given exemptions and cyber criminals have cropped up online offering to sell you fake vaccination certificates. YouTube announcing they're going to be removing anti-vax information. Funding for cystic fibrosis drugs in Alberta at long last. We know that Alberta's Doctors and nurses have been under intense pressure. That's uh, something that we know. Getting some help today, the uh, nurses from the Maritimes and the Canadian military expected to be in our province today, trying to relieve some of the stress on the ICU, which is great. Thank you for coming. We appreciate the help. Um, But it's not just in the hospitals where doctors are dealing with some of the issues that have arisen recently around COVID-19. Family docs also reporting they're seeing all kinds of abuse from people who come in saying they want a medical exemption from being vaccinated. Um, and getting very angry when they can't get one because there's no reason to give them one. It's really turned into a volatile situation in some cases. So we're going to chat now with um, Susan Ulan, who is the deputy registrar with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta. Susan, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today.
0: Good morning, Shay. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you very much for the invite.
1: Yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a disheartening situation, not completely unexpected, though. Just tell us, I mean, h- how bad is it? Are you hearing a lot of reports from family Doc saying that people are, are getting really quite um, aggressive in terms of seeking these exemptions?
0: uh unfortunately yes we see we are uh very aware and have been contacted by numerous physicians and organizations with their concerns about uh racial slurs aggressive patients very angry patients we've even been contacted by physicians who have received death threats um uh due to some of their opinions that they have publicly so unfortunately it's a very very conflicted healthcare environment right now and many physicians and patients are sometimes having challenges in navigating that.
1: Has it been going on for, I mean, there's so many different polarized positions on this. I imagine family docs have faced all kinds of difficult situations. Has it gotten worse as we've gone farther along?
0: I think it certainly has got a different uh, feel in 2021. 2020, I think that the relationship between the healthcare system and the public was very collaborative. People really did feel like they were working together. Healthcare providers felt respected, valued by patients and society as a whole. Um, that seems to have changed in 2021. And so physicians and other healthcare providers are not feeling respected by patients they've got patients who are coming in who are very demanding very aggressive feel entitled uh, due to their belief systems to demand um, medical exemptions for vaccines or or anti or not to wear masks Mm -hmm. and so it does have a very different feel to it and that conflict is coming out in quite negative ways so i would agree with you i think it is worse and it's not just a alberta pardon me it's uh uh with my colleagues uh, are noticing the same thing from across the country
1: yeah and around the world i would imagine um now doctors i mean they have there's rules there's regulations around who they can grant these exemptions to right it's not like they're making a judgment call there's certain thresholds that have to be met before they can issue one of these exemptions and it's exceedingly rare correct
0: That's entirely correct. And a physician not only has rules, but they've got a professional obligation to be aware of the evidence, uh, to be aware of the good evidence, the balanced evidence, to keep up to date with that. And for any particular patient to look at uh, the evidence and the recommendations for those rare medical exemptions in the context of that particular patient. It would be very inappropriate for a physician to have a blanket statement that they provide medical exemptions to all patients, and it's just as inappropriate for them to say that they provide medical exemptions for no patients. So they really do need to assess the patient individually and make the right decision in their professional opinion. And they're held to that with our standards of practice and professional ethics uh, to make the right decision for that patient.
1: So when we're seeing, you know, this escalation, and as you say, some doctors facing even death threats, uh, racist abuse, all these sorts of things. um, What can the college do? What can any of us do? to try and stem this and make sure that the doctors not only aren't subjected to this, but ultimately are safe in their position?
0: Well, it's a really good question. I think prevention's the key. So what we've done as a regulatory body is provide really clear communication to physicians about uh, what the criteria are for those rare medical exemptions, how to approach that, um, how to uh, de-escalate when a patient physician interaction is going sideways, and importantly, how to prevent some of that conflict from happening in the first place. I think one of the unique things that we've done, normally we communicate very clearly and quite frequently with physicians and other healthcare providers, but what we don't do very often is reach out to Albertans. On September 28th, we actually directly reached out to Albertans with a letter about this issue issue and to explain that physicians are obligated professionally to uh, use evidence, that there's very few legitimate medical indications to uh, validate a vaccine exemption. Most of them are temporary, if not at all, and that physicians are entitled and their staff, as everyone else is, to work in a safe and respectful work environment. And so we've highlighted that if patients are angry or Uh, Abuses, either verbally or threatening, that physicians have every right to be able to ask those patients to leave their setting. They can call police or security for those physicians' working facilities. And ultimately, a physician may terminate the physician-patient relationship because they are no longer comfortable uh, providing care to somebody who puts their staff and themselves at risk.
1: And obviously, I mean, we don't have to state the obvious here, but this is against the law, threatening people like this. I mean, you can end up in trouble for this kind of behavior.
0: Of course. And physicians is interesting. Healthcare providers are um, very familiar with taking care of sick patients who are often angry, uh, defensive. So for physicians to actually feel threatened yeah. and other healthcare providers uh, means that uh, the, the risk is quite substantial. It's not like working in other context. And physicians are often very reluctant to call the police or security and are trained in a lot of ways just to kind of soldier on, suck it up, and to get the job done. And that can have some negative consequences. We know the unfortunate situation of a physician who was murdered in Red Deer a year and a half ago, okay. actually almost two years ago now, and... Um, that is not uh, murders uncommon, but violence against healthcare providers and in the healthcare setting, all team members is actually quite common and it's significantly underreported. So physicians and other healthcare providers have a right, and we encourage them to put their safety. And that uh, at first and foremost, and that's non-negotiable. And we support physicians in setting limits and uh, either terminating the relationship with a particular patient or asking the patient to leave uh, when it's warranted.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And calling in for law enforcement if needed. Um, Susan, thank you so much for your time this morning. Some great information. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for reaching out. Yeah, thank you. That is Susan Ulan, who is the Deputy Registrar with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta, and all kinds of family docs are reporting this, on and on and on. Um, This listener says, is it true the only exemption is anaphylactic shock from the first dose vaccine? My wife had myocarditis previously, but that is not enough for exemption. Not according to the information that I have. According to the information that I have, um, very few people are eligible for an exemption, But that includes anyone diagnosed with myocarditis or pericarditis, inflammation of the heart or its membrane, or anyone who has a confirmed anaphylactic allergy to an ingredient in the COVID-19 vaccine. So I think if you do have a diagnosis of myocarditis, you would qualify for the exemption, at least according to the information that I have.
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out.
1: Things changed, uh, not just in our province, but right across the country and in many parts of the world recently around this whole COVID uh, vaccination certification deal. As you know, it's now something that's kind of, sort of, almost in effect in Alberta, up to businesses to decide if they want you to prove that you've been vaccinated. And the way that you go about doing that still in Alberta is uh, you just print off a copy of your health care record showing that you have been. And as you know, it's been widely um, duplicated and forged. and it, It's not at all secure. So I don't know how much business in Alberta there has been for the cyber criminals who have launched a new cottage industry creating face, fake vaccine certificates, but they are, and you knew they would, You know, be it a QR code, whatever the case may be, this business has sprung up immediately and people are taking advantage of it. Um, we're going to get some information on how widespread this is and what we can do about it with Robert Falzone, who's head of engineering at Checkpoint Software's canadian office robert thank you for joining us this morning i appreciate your time thanks for having me here shay you know now really we shouldn't be surprised by this right robert i mean especially with all the attention these vaccine passports have been getting and how essential they are to do so many things you know that cyber criminals are just going to see dollar signs and jump right in right
3: this is no different than almost any other scam we've seen when there's an opportunity and there's there's uh, uh you know there's generated need uh, there's going to be those folks who fill that gap with, uh, with you know, any sort of fake uh, product they can get
1: their hands on to try to make bucks quickly. So that's exactly what we're seeing here, I'm afraid. And how widespread is it? Is it pretty commonplace, pretty easy to find? I think right now it is
3: fairly commonplace, uh, because there are there are a number of systems that aren't quite online yet, or they're not doing yeah. the sort of more uh, in- integrity type checks that make sure that the, the information is correct. Um, there's lax enforcement in some places as well. So I think because of those types of things right now we are seeing quite a significant amount
1: and the market will only grow right as these bugs get worked out as restrictions become more strict in different locations these will be more important and therefore people will be more eager to find them i think it'll get a little bit more
3: sophisticated yeah. as the uh, because as they start to clamp down for example uh, here in ontario uh, on the 22nd of october there'll be uh, digital qr codes that will be required that will be checked against a digital database going to make it uh, significantly more difficult for those who are, you know, simple at-home foragers, for example. Um, so I think what will happen is the the methods will become more sophisticated, the prices will probably go up, it will not eliminate it, but it will certainly make it much more
1: difficult and the stakes will be higher. Now, I don't want to say buyer beware to people who are out hitting the black market and buying these fake documents, but in reality, um, oftentimes these guys will sell you something that they promise is going to work and it turns out to be junk if it even exists as you say, as things get more and more regulated and, you know, QR codes and stuff like that, can you even be reasonably confident that what you're buying is going to actually work for you?
3: Well, that's interesting because in some cases you can, in some cases you can't, and I'll differentiate there for you. Uh, These criminals actually, in in many cases, um, have uh, reputations, and, you know, they want to continue to sell their wares uh, as long as possible. So, for example, if you're, you know, some folks are getting them uh, on the dark web, uh, many of those stores, if you will, on the dark web have reputations and rating systems and so forth. So they do try to present or deliver something. Um, the, you know, the the average uh, at home criminal, if you will, are uh, probably not so sophisticated, right. and likely you're going to get scammed 100.
1: Uh, percent So our government's not, in some way, at least partly responsible for this. I mean, if they're handing out secure QR codes that link to government-held information, how can these hackers or these cyber criminals? come up with this same thing? Are they just hacking into the system, or how does it work? In some cases, it's insiders.
3: Uh, In some cases, there are weaknesses, as was with the um, in Quebec when they initially rolled it out. The software was designed to be used in multiple different jurisdictions, so they had uh, a component within the software that allowed them to check against uh, additional authentication sources, and as a result of that, uh, somebody exploited that uh, immediately and was able to take advantage of it. That loophole was closed. Uh, and remains closed in in a number of other jurisdictions. But mistakes like that will happen, and obviously they have to react quickly. They have to have a solid cybersecurity response protocol and make sure that the tools they're using are advanced enough to manage any
1: more types of attacks that might occur from the outside. And so far, at least in Alberta, um, the messaging from Alberta Health largely has been, yes, we're aware that people are doing this. We need to remind you that it's illegal. This is criminal activity. You cannot alter an official document like this. So we should point out that you can get in trouble for doing stuff like this. These are
3: significant fines. I mean, uh, there's the case of the the Americans that tried to enter uh, across the Canadian border and were fined $20,000 apiece. So that's not an insignificant fine. And various different jurisdictions have uh, additional fines and and, uh, municipal code violations and stuff that will certainly um, make for a miserable week, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it, but we know it's out there. Um, Robert, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Sure. Yeah, you bet. That is Robert Falzone, who is head of engineering at Checkpoint Software's Canadian office. And yeah, I mean, that's the way that the internet works, right? Uh, and I'm sure there's all kinds of different places where people are offering these sorts of documents and, and things like that. Now, Alberta did come out with their QR code on the weekend. I got mine. You can get it. Um, it's pretty quick, pretty easy. You just go in and you put in your healthcare number and uh, the date you got vaccinated, and if those two things match up, ching! They they send you the QR code, which is great. Still haven't figured out how to save it to my phone yet. Trying to work on that. Apparently, there's a way you can do it, but I haven't figured it out. And uh, the other issue, of course, is the fact that the program that businesses will have to use to scan that QR code that's not done yet. It's sort of turning into a social media day, in terms of uh, what kind of influence they have on our society and how they uh, are under increasing pressure to try and deal with some of the the misinformation and and the division and and the hate and the violence and all the stuff that we all encounter on social media every day. Uh, we talked about Facebook earlier. Sixty Minutes doing a piece with the Facebook whistleblower with all kinds of internal Facebook documents. Basically what she says is every single time they're put in this position, they focus on profit over public safety and she can prove it with the documents. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to have a chat in a moment here about YouTube announcing last week that they're going to take steps to get rid of anti-vax information on their platform. And we got this text and I get this all the time and I'm sure you've heard it too. Uh, Hey, Shay, leave the policing to the police. No private entity has the right to censor, remove, or otherwise dictate what should and should not be allowed on a public platform. That's why we have the Charter of Rights, and that's part of having freedoms and liberties. There's a lot of confusion going on in this text, so let's pull it apart. No private entity has the right to censor, remove, or otherwise dictate. Yeah, they do. That's what a private entity is all about. They have every right in the world to do whatever they want to do, which should and should not be allowed on a public platform. It's not a public platform. It's a private company offering you access to their platform and if they don't like what you're doing on their platform, for whatever reason, they don't have to justify it. They boot you off. That's what private is all about. It's not a private entity with a public platform. It doesn't work that way. That's a private company with a private platform with rules of engagement and terms of use that we all agree to, even though we probably didn't read them when we signed on, and they have every right. Every right in the world to say, you know what? You violated what we want people using our platform for. You need to go away. It's not a charter of rights and freedoms things. Freedom of speech, where it extends to the charter of rights and freedoms, means the government cannot punish you for saying what you want to say, standing on a street corner and saying it. That's your platform. It's not when it comes to private businesses. They can do whatever they want. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's talk a bit about what, youtube is planning to do we're going to be chatting now with annabelle kwan haze who is western rogers chair in studies in journalism and new information technology annabelle thank you so much for your time today i appreciate you joining us oh hello shay it's absolutely my pleasure now do i have that right because i'm sure you get that all the time too right this is censorship you can't do this i have freedom of speech not when it comes to these kinds of platforms freedom of speech ends at the end of the street corner essentially right
4: Well, I mean, it gets complicated. Uh, It's an extremely complicated debate. And I think this is exactly at the heart of what YouTube is doing, right? It's trying to decide, you know, where where do we respect, you know, freedom of speech, you know, people's ability to post information. And when is the point where a platform like YouTube is actually harming or even deceiving people? So I think what we need to realize here is that, you know, uh, so far, platforms like YouTube um, have had a free, right, like a free go, uh, whereas legacy media, like the new, are much more regulated. Um, but, you know, as they increase in kind of, uh, you know, in, in terms of the user base, you know, uh, the, the effects, the impact, uh, we're, we're seeing a pushback in terms of, you know, a need for more regulation.
1: Now, they've brought in similar plans before around misinformation, right? So let's just clarify the announcement last week. Um, what's different this time around?
4: So you just, you know, you, you, you're you really showing kind of like an incremental kind of, um, you know, change here in yeah. terms of their policies. And honestly, it's surprising that these changes haven't been implemented uh, a long time ago. And I mean, not here since the pandemic, but I mean, a decade ago. So some of the two really uh, big changes, you know, that were implemented last week is first that you know, um, kind of the ban on COVID-19 anti-vaccine information um, has been expanded, you know, to include um, any kind of vaccine. And I think that's really, that, that's an important step and should have happened a long time ago. Um, and the second big change is that, you know, I think YouTube is now recognizing that, you know, a lot of what we're seeing, a lot of the dissemination, the spread of disinformation, is coming from just like a handful of yes. personalities of influencers. So they're banning some of those influencers.
1: As you said, this probably should have happened quite some time ago. It's good that they're doing it. Don't get me wrong. But um, this is kind of like closing the barn door long after the horses are gone, isn't it? Especially around this issue. Well, it
4: is because um, we have seen both in Canada, in the U.S., globally, you know, kind of a hesitation towards vaccines that have been around for a very long time. Uh, measles, hepatitis B, yep. you know, that have a excellent record, and there's really kind of no reason why there should be any kind of big pushback or hesitancy. And that information has really not, you know, like they haven't really regulated, you know, what people are saying on the platform about that, even though you know the, the science is fairly clear. So uh, I think that you know that was way overdue.
1: Now, when it comes to trying you know, have some sort of policing or regulation on these sort of platforms. Um, they've all talked about it, right? You can name anyone that you want, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, YouTube, the list goes on. They all recognize that they've got an issue when it comes to misinformation and, and that sort of thing. Um, but how do you possibly, I mean, they're so huge. Is it really um, almost an impossibility to regulate all the information that passes on their platforms every day?
4: you just hit it right on the nail it, it's basically impossible yeah. and once you close one account I and mean, you can kind of imagine you know that they either go underground on something like 4chan you know which are kind of more on uh, niche communities or that new accounts will po- pop up that need to be regulated um the good news is that you know youtube which kind of is an affiliate of google um they have you know incredible computational capabilities that can sift through this information in real time. So, you know, like, I feel like we're, you know, it's a, it's a competition between, you know, disinformation being spread and the development of new kind of techniques and algorithms that can counter that.
1: Um, has anybody done it successfully? Can we point to anybody who's actually tried to take these kinds of steps in the social media realm and, and done it well?
4: starting to do it but we also see new stories popping up um so i think you know we we see that they they kind of take a more reactive approach Mm -hmm. to this yeah so as soon as a scandal comes up we see that there's a lot of kind of um you know i would call it almost rhetoric but you know there's there's a lot of talk about what are the next important steps you know what are the regulations that will be implemented and i think in some areas like um bullying, you know, cyberbullying, harassment, uh, Facebook has done a really good job. I think now they need to implement similar approaches, you know, that are large scale, uh, that are based, you know, on on algorithms, on machine learning, uh, to some of these other areas. And um, it's to them, you know, they're always balancing, you know, clickbait profits um, with the need to actually provide citizens with credible, you know, information that we can trust.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, Basically, the, the message here, I think, Annabelle, always, um, and we're failing at this as a society, is it, it's up to the user, right? It's up to the user to try and verify some of this stuff. I mean, even if those platforms are doing everything they possibly can, it's impossible to do it all. And it comes down to the consumer of this information.
4: Yeah, Shay, and to be honest, we we are implementing a lot in Canada. We're doing a lot of work, you know, when it comes to elementary schools and digital literacy, media literacy. Um, you know, we're doing a lot at the university level, uh, trying to teach the skills, you know, the critical skills. Um, but some of those videos, I mean I I've seen a video recently, for example, with uh Yahoo Finance, uh, where uh Robert uh, Kennedy Jr. was being interviewed. And honestly it was it's hard to kind of disambiguate um what is credible credible information yeah. and what isn't? And um, if that's you know difficult for somebody who studies media uh, like myself and has been studying media for over twenty years, you can kind of imagine that a young user, maybe seventeen or eighteen, sure. uh, would also have a hard time you know figuring out is this a credible interview? They mention science a lot, they mention evidence a lot, so these are all kind of cues that hint towards credible sources. Um, And so there's a real confounding, you know, out there in in the social media realm uh, towards, you know, what is credible and what isn't.
1: Exactly. And, uh, And you know what, it's also the preponderance of it. If you get into those algorithms where you're constantly being fed the same thing, we're all susceptible to that over time. No matter who you are, if you're constantly getting that message reinforced day after day, month after month, it will have an impact on you.
4: Yeah, and Shay, what we're finding a lot is that the way these um, algorithms work is that they've figured out how clickbait works well. So yeah. they figured out what information draws our attention quickly, and so when we see those kinds of headlines, sometimes we don't even need to read the full story because it's already left an impression on us. Yeah. So often that bias, you know, is further reinforced. So if we click on a clickbait, you know, because it's drawing our attention, it's kind of sensationalized. Um, then, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the algorithm will find, you know, information that is similar in some way, you know, based on some, you know, algorithmic cue. And then you will be exposed to more of yeah. that information. And it's kind of going down the rabbit hole. Um, the more you see of it, the more you're convinced, the more you're looking for it as well.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's just a cycle. Annabelle, great conversation. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much Jake, for having me. Yeah, we'll, we'll chat again. Thank you. Bye-bye. That is Annabelle uh, Kwan-Hazay, Haze, is the Western Rogers Chair in Studies in Journalism and New Information Technology. Some good news for uh, some Albertans. Uh, very, very good news. Uh, the province has announced they will start funding a drug for cystic fibrosis patients in Alberta. Uh, something that's been worked on for a while and... Uh, really can make a big, big difference to a number of Albertans. So we're going to chat with a couple of people about this. We're going to speak with Amanda Bartels, who is a provincial advocate for cystic fibrosis and a CF patient, and also Sharon Stepaniak, who is the provincial advocate for cystic fibrosis as well. Uh, Ladies, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So, Amanda, as a patient, a CF patient, why don't we just start there? Cystic fibrosis, I'm sure we've all heard of it, Um, And some of us have some understanding of of what it means to live with cystic fibrosis. But give us uh, some insight. What is cystic fibrosis and what has it meant to you?
5: Cystic fibrosis is a rare, fatal genetic disease that affects young Canadians. It's the most uh, common rare genetic disease. There's um, about 600 people in Alberta with cystic fibrosis, and it affects mainly the lungs and digestive system. It there is no cure, and it is progressive. So what that means is that as my health declines, it takes more time to keep myself healthy. So I was at a point where I needed extra oxygen um, because my my lungs were in such rough shape, what happens is we get repeated um, bacterial infections in our lungs and our lungs produce very thick, sticky mucus and those bacterial infections become harder and harder to treat over time and results in permanent scarring to the lungs um, and eventually for most would be lung failure, needing either a transplant or that would be the cause of passing away. So. In 2019, I was at the point where I needed to spend about five hours a day doing inhaled medications just to combat that mucus, um, as well as um, a routine to clear my airways, so doing respiratory physiotherapy. Um, We also have a very difficult time digesting fats in our foods, so we need to take medication to help digest That food and because we don't absorb our nutrients and our fats well, um, weight is always an issue too. Mm -hmm. So we would need to eat four to 5,000 calories a day just to maintain a healthy weight. Um, And with Trikafta being a medication that treats the root cause of CF, it fixes the, the broken protein in our cells. Um, a lot of the, the symptoms go away, but you're actually also fixing the root cause. So since starting Trikafta, I was able to gain a good 30 pounds, which puts me at a healthy weight and allows me to be able to fight infections easier and have that, that cushion of health. Um, to To deal with that. And my, my treatments have become a lot easier. I don't need extra oxygen anymore. Um, I was headed on a path to double lung transplant uh, near the end of 2019. My lung had collapsed and the IV antibiotics required to keep myself healthy for as long as possible just weren't Doing the job anymore, so um, I was headed down that path. But then, in, in summer 2020, I was I was granted compassionate access to this medication.
1: Now, this medication, um, obviously, like you say, there's still no cure for CF. Um, but yeah. this, what change has it made in your day to day life? And what about your long term prognosis? How significant is it in that area?
5: So I took my first dose in the morning, and by the afternoon, all of that thick mucus that has lined my lungs for years started to purge and and just want out. So what that did was it opened up all the airways in my lungs as well. I still have a lot of permanent scarring. I will never have healthy lungs again. Um, by getting this medication into children 12 and up now um, will totally change their life because if you can get them before they have all the scarring and, and permanent damage that I have had, um, it's going to change their life so much. So those airways opened up. Um, I didn't need the oxygen anymore. Things like walking across my front yard with oxygen was difficult and now I can run errands and just do my Daily tasks all day long, play with my daughter, um, do groceries without Hmm. needing a nap afterwards, stuff like that. Um, At the end of, or in the fall of 2020, I was able to cycle the Legacy Trail, which goes from Banff to Camorra and back in an afternoon. Um, So that's a huge accomplishment, but it's really the day to day things that. That have made such a huge difference in our life and brought such a, a lesser burden of this disease for us. As for long term, right now I've been on the medication for a year and a half, and whereas I used to spend a good sixty to sixty days in the hospital every year and probably more on home care, after that um, I have not spent a single night in the hospital since wow. uh, since starting the medication. So,
1: so it's completely and totally changed your life then. Oh yeah. Yeah. Amazing. New
5: hopes, new everything. It's yeah. fantastic.
1: No, now, Sharon, this drug, obviously it's fantastic news that it's now being funded in the province of Alberta, but it took a while to get to this point, didn't it?
2: It did. Um, Canada has quite an arduous system between um, the time it took for the drug company to apply to Health Canada, um, Health Canada to do the approval process, and they did grant a priority review, so it was six months as opposed to a year plus. Um So it feels like a long time for patients. When patients are having declining health, it did feel like we were really waiting. And I think the biggest time period where we had to wait was for them to initially apply to Health Canada and um, kind of deal with some of the regulatory hurdles. But after that, um, the provinces moved really, really quickly as far as approving a drug goes. Um, Health Canada approved at the end of June. uh, The CADDOT, which is like a health technology assessment board, they provided their recommendations and made some provisions to their recommendations and within about a week alberta listed on the public formulary and they listed it that day so typically you wait till the first of the next month alberta was so on top of it and had been um, working on this file throughout even all the busyness of COVID Mm -hmm. and was ready to provide this drug to people that um, needed it immediately. And I know a friend whose daughter is quite sick with um, cystic fibrosis and Alberta approved it about a week ago and she's starting it this week. So that's amazing turnaround. So in one way, we feel like we've been waiting a long time for, this isn't a cure, but as close as we're going to get to it. We've been waiting so long for a drug like this and the Alberta government definitely streamlined the process and got it to us as quickly as they could, as they could.
1: And at considerable cost to the province too. This is a very expensive medication, isn't it?
2: It is an expensive medication. Um, although the list price is misleading because um, the the provinces have this. Um, The PCPA, they negotiate the prices altogether, all the provinces Mm -hmm. and territories, and so they have negotiated a better price than that. That price is confidential because the drug company doesn't want those prices released internationally, but they negotiate a price that they think is fair and that fits within their health budgets um, before they decide to fund it. And also, uh, CF is an expensive disease to manage. Sure. Within the healthcare system, um, just within the healthcare system and the cost and the burden on families and caretakers of people with CF. So there's a lot of cost savings on the other side of it as well.
1: Um, Again, how many people in Alberta do we know have CF? And I guess I'm wondering, um, you know, like in Amanda's case, this came. You know wonderful that it came when it did, but if this was given to a younger person, a child perhaps dealing with c f would it completely and utterly not i don't want to say return them to normal functioning, but you know what i mean how how big of an impact could this have on somebody who's much younger?
2: I think it would have a huge difference um if you haven't had to experience lung function loss that Amanda and some other people have had to experience, if you've just had some lung function loss, you will get some you often get lung function increase um, with this drug, it just changes the face of the disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not going to have to go through all the disease progression and you can have your cells functioning normally from early on, I think that we gonna CF is going to be treated very differently going forward. You know, we're just starting, and yeah. these drugs are just coming onto the market. But I know for myself, with my kids, knowing that these drugs are out here and they need a different form of one of these modulators, but does the same thing, Um it will just change their opportunities it'll change their outlook on life it'll change kind of decisions that you make as a family and as a individual as far as your career, your family planning, where you want to live, everything. so it really unless it gives us hope for a disease that doesn 't have a lot of hope it 's finally giving you hope, and that right there, I think is the biggest thing it 's very difficult to live day to day with a d- fatal disease when it 's yourself or it 's your children. And to finally have hope is incredible,
1: yeah, Amanda, Just that outlook on life you know at like you say, um you know, up to two months a year in hospital and five hours a day uh, taking care of yourself, just just now that that's changed, how does how you know that had to be just so burdensome, do you feel sort of freer do you I mean how has your outlook on life changed?
5: I have spent the last six months really trying to figure out what the right words are to describe what this has been. The closest I've still found is liberating, um doesn't capture all of it. Yeah. But CF being a progressive disease, you're just supposed to be on this this downhill track. You're not supposed you can have little bumps where you get a little bit better and then decline again, a little bit better. But you're ultimately is a downhill battle. Um, it doesn't matter how hard you fight in the end it's going to get worse, right? And yeah. with Trikafta, you get time back, which is not, again, it's not supposed to happen for a progressive disease. It is that groundbreaking that you feel like, I feel like I did almost 10 years ago. Um, and that's something I never, ever thought would happen again. And it's it's a huge blessing in our lives. Um, my My husband is much less stressed about my health, of course. Our daughter can just enjoy being a 10-year-old right now instead of worrying after I get back from a doctor's appointment that, oh, is mom going to go in the hospital again? Um, and just, yeah, we just are able to to kind of live life in the moment now instead of with that, that hanging over yeah. your head so firmly. I mean, it's still there, of course. I, I still have cystic fibrosis. I still have severe lung disease because I was at a point where I was very, very, very sick. But as Sharon said, if we can get these medications, and now we can, to age 12 and up, I don't know what my life would have been like if this had been available when I was 12. The gene had just been discovered when I was nine, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. It's taken it's this moving so quickly for like 30 years for it to, to move to where we are now. Um, but yeah, those those kids that are going to have... Just a, a new lease on life. Now they can they can look forward with hope instead of this being staring down this disease where you know you're just everything is is so hard all the time.
1: Uh, ladies, I can't thank you enough for your time this morning. Uh, a great message, and I'm so happy uh, to hear that this is uh, part of the program now here in Alberta. And thank you so much for being here today.
5: Thanks, thanks, thanks a lot for and... having us.
1: That is Amanda Bartels and Sharon Stepaniak, Provincial Advocates for Cystic Fibrosis. Amanda, also a patient, and there you go. The drug now being offered for CF patients in Alberta, and you hear what a difference it makes. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.